Welcome to the Trad Dads Podcast, where we examine cultural and political issues through the lens of traditional thought. All right, so today I have Anthony Stein of the Return to Tradition YouTube channel slash podcast uh, joining me to talk a little bit about uh, minimum wage and the, and the gig economy and some of this kind of stuff. Um, he has some experience with this kind of thing, and, and I think it would be I think it's good to uh, talk through some of the stuff. And Anthony, uh, he, he heard my recent episode on uh, the gig economy and uh, kind of wanted to bring some experience to the table and just have uh, maybe a, a discussion sort of on the heels of that uh, more policy focused gig economy episode. So Anthony, welcome. Uh, thanks for, thanks for joining me. And uh, what, um, what, what do you think about uh, this whole, you know, the, this, your experience with the gig economy and, and minimum wage and all of that? So, well, thanks for having me on. Um, so just as a little backstory, I started doing this whole social media thing when I lost my last office job where I was working in sort of uh, institutionalized usury. And I wasn't doing very well in that job, and especially when I would, you know, my guilty conscience of burying people in student debt so they can get a worthless, literally worthless degrees. Right, right. And I, this isn't a, it's not a val- that's not a quality, you know, me having judgment on most normal degrees. This was, some of these were really utterly useless majors, and I couldn't say no to them. And after a while, well, I didn't last. So I started my yeah. channel about a, a couple weeks later, and then two or three months later, I, once it became clear that I was going to be looking for a job for a while, I decided to, this is before I was making any, you know, any kind of income from YouTube and anything else. I started doing the DoorDash sort of thing in uh, mostly in the Oklahoma city area. And I did that for a good six months before I, or seven months before I decided to uh, quit that and go work for a local, a, the local franchise of a, I was called a second tier national pizza chain. Most people haven't heard of the one I work uh, that I deliver for, but they are in almost every state in the country and make a better product than the ones you have heard for. And I'm not saying that because I am loyal to them, but that's because why I just decided to apply there. I yeah. actually like the food. Like it's easy right, to right. it's easier to sell a product if you actually don't find it revolting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, so when I wasn't doing DoorDash, this is like in the last couple of months you've heard, uh, you may have heard, you know, in the news that, the state of California has changed its gig economy laws and that the organizations like DoorDash had to change their compensation models because it was pretty bad. Like I live about 30 miles from Oklahoma city. And so I would go drive to Oklahoma city, not knowing if I was oh, going to make wow. any money that day or not, Right. put gas in my car. And on a good day, I'd make 50 or 60 bucks in tips in six or seven hours. That sounds like a good deal. Not really. <laughs> and yeah, uh, no. you do that, you know, do that a few times a week. And I was doing that just to pay one bill. Right. 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 And yeah. So I finally gave up, I finally gave up on that and got, you know, an actual part-time job and it, you know, delivering pizzas and such. And there's a, the food delivery, the pizza industry is where I'm most familiar with tips. And there's something a lot of people don't know about is what we call the alternative minimum wage, which is not its legal name, but that's just an easy way to think about it. So in the United States, right. mm-hmm. the minimum wage is seven twenty-five an hour, but mm-hmm. there are two other minimum wages that are applicable to our conversation. And one is the, uh, what we call the maximum tip credit against minimum wage and then the minimum cash wage. And the minimum cash wage applies like 
Frank, the way it basically works is if you go into a, if you go into a Denny's or any kind of a sit down restaurant, your weight person is probably making $2 and 13 cents an hour plus tips. Right. Yeah. So if you don't pay, if you please, please leave a tip for those people. Like seriously, yeah, especially the, the cheaper the restaurant, you don't, you know, it, <laughs> Well, I think that, you know, to me, like I'm, I'm one of those people where I'm always, to me, 15% is the minimum. And I know, I mean, this, this kind of, you know, there's all these criticisms like, well, that just ruins the institution of tipping and all that stuff. And, and I mean, I can explain that some other time, but um, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm more concerned about their wage than I am like incentivizing good service because, you know, most of the time, you know, people do a decent job and it's, you know, it's fine. Like if they're just like overtly rude or, you know, uh, if they do a really, really good job, you know, then I'm, I'm going to go outside those bounds, but I'm a 15 to 20% tipper uh, like every time. And I don't know that's if that gets them, a, that's above how I am minimum, too. but, but yeah, that's how I am too. And you know, if you find yourself going out to eat on a holiday, which there's, you know, some, you know, moral questions about that that aren't really related to our conversation sure remember that person probably didn't have much of a choice about the, whether they were there or not yes mm -hmm. most of those restaurants will tell you we do this on a voluntary basis um i traded having christmas eve and christmas day off so that i could you know do the traditional fast on christmas eve and right. observe the you know the, the holy day on christmas day right i traded those days off so i would end up working <laughs> new year's eve and new year's night and what ended up happening is I work much later than I normally do. I am not a night person but <laughs> yeah. at all. Like I'm, you know, I'm up at three in the morning, you know, for do, doing my work and at, at the gym by 5am right. if I can, and then back home doing more work. That's, right. those are my best hours. So being up, you know, knocking on someone's door at nine 30 at night with a pizza in my hands is not exactly something that is my uh, ideal situation. Sure. But a lot of the people I work with, they work two and three jobs. Some of them, like there's one guy I know who, he gets probably some of the most hours of any of the drivers. And he, mm -hmm. in addition to that, like, and, and by most hours, I mean like 20 hours, 24 hours right. a week. Cause none of, that's the other thing. None of these guys are getting many hours. He also will go do Postmates and DoorDash in the Oklahoma city area on top of that. Well, so that's, that's interesting. This is like, because I think it gets to some of the stuff about like the relationship between you and your employer and how that's changed over time. Mm -hmm. You know, we, I mean, I think probably our, if our parents are fairly old or, or our grandparents can remember a time when, you know, you had this long career with this one employer and, you know, at your, you know, your 20 year, or your 30 year, uh, you know, anniversary on the job, they give you like a gold watch and, you know, all of this kind of thing. And now it's like, there is no, I mean, and that wasn't, that wasn't true in every case, right? I mean, obviously there were fast food restaurants, you know, no, but that was that this that kind of thing. It was the cultural norm, though, that you would sure. you were you were you were hoping to find yourself with that company that you could work hard and climb the ladder, or yeah. even or even if you got stuck in the same job for forty years, you were yeah. it still was a better situation than what we have now, which is kind of a super gig economy. Right. Congratulations. Thought that there, I think there were problems with that model because I think, like for instance, the um, you know the the whole the whole kind of company town thing, where like you know they wouldn't even pay you in you know money; they would just pay you in script you know, that you had to use at their grocery stores. And, uh, you know, I think, I think you get kind of a, a power problem there a little bit. Well, but. right. And the more modern world, like the ones that our parents and grandparents dealt with where they were working 30, 40 years at a place, the problem they were running into instead was the, uh, the state governments and the municipal governments giving these ridiculous tax benefits that basically made it so these companies were 
almost a parasite in the, on the, in the community. Yes. Yes. All the people they were hiring were paying taxes. Yes. I will not deny that, but right, right. what happens when one of those companies gets a better deal somewhere else, they move and all of a sudden the local economy is just annihilated. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's but, a problem. Right. So, but what I was saying about like minimum wage and stuff like that is, you know, it's like they don't, you know, the, there's, there's such a, there's such an arm's length relationship between the person and their employer now that people are kind of forced into what you're talking about, where like if the, the employer doesn't want to give them, you know, a normal amount of hours because they don't, you know, they don't want to put all their stock in that one person. And so then that one person just to make ends meet has to end up finding, you know, one or two more employers, you know, just to, just to get things, you know, just to, just to make ends meet. And it's, and I think it's one of these things where, you know, it's, it's, it's not super clear, you know, what the chicken in the egg kind of thing is, right? It's like, did, did people decide, you know, like that they, that they wanted to live in this gig economy, you know, because, you know, employers started doing it because they thought it benefited them? Or was it, um, you know, that people just, you know, have no ability to commit to anything anymore. And so employers were sort of forced into it. I'm not really sure which one is which, and I, I don't think it really matters that much, but in, in public policy, we would call that a wicked problem. You know, a wicked policy problem is one that's got, is so complicated yeah. that fixing the problem is nearly impossible because you can't identify where to attack the problem. Right. And, and it's connected see, think, to so many things. But I think what's so interesting about that is like that, that ends up being half of the discussion or more or almost all the discussion, right. Is just which way the causality lies. And it's like, who cares, you know, like come up with a policy proposal that, that can handle both causes. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. or at least can handle one of them and see if it works. Right. Right. But uh, I mean, this is the thing that I notice is, that well for me anyway this problem was complicated because you know some people might say we'll just get a better job well yeah. when i applied for that well when i stopped putting actively in uh, professional applications and because of the ability to you know my social media work and these other projects of you know i'm working on with others once that when that made it so i could support my family at, at least at the same level that my last office job did yeah. i was at 300 job applications in with oh probably gosh. 15 or 20 interviews totally. and i mean what a waste you know like what a waste of time and all the you know these employers employing all these people just to sift through all these applications and this is during a good economy by the way yeah right I, i'm i'm you know nervously watching you know the economic indicators wondering what's going to happen you know in, in two years and yeah when that happens i mean when it when the next economic downturn happens you know, those, that 300 job applications that I have, that I'd put in would have probably be closer to 500 or 600 with the same kind of result. That's if there's even that many openings. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It just seems like, you know, I mean, so for this gig economy thing is, is and it also goes beyond just the, the lower pay. And I, and I think we want to, we want to get into this, the, the tax consequences of this thing too, but, but, it, but it's just, you know, it's like people are so used to, you know, these benefits being attached to these jobs. And, and, you know, the history of that is, um, you know, I, I probably need to do a separate show on the history of, you know, employment taxes and stuff like that. Um, but, but it's, it's, it's frustrating because people have this expectation that they're going to get benefits. Well, then when they don't, then they end up having to take on more jobs. And, and it's like, then, then you give up all of these sort of spiritual goods, right? You make it like you were saying about Christmas and stuff, you make all these weird trade-offs that, 
you know, people with a stable employment, you know, can't, you know, don't have to worry about. Right. Right. Um, so and like, so, and so one of the things I wanted to say is if you order a pizza, tip your driver. I'm not just saying that because yeah. I deliver pizza, but because the moment your driver walks out the door, their uh, wage goes down in my state. Yeah. The average for the pizza driver is four eighty-five an hour. Now you might be thinking, well, yeah, but that guy is getting that delivery free. No, he's not. He's getting no. that goes to re to compensate them for fuel and vehicle wear based on how many miles they drive. Yeah which is I think around typically 25 to 35 cents a, uh, a mile. <laughs> so if you're paying a $3 delivery fee, you're, yeah. you've got to have a five mile round trip for that driver to get that full three bucks. And that just brings them up too close or just slightly above minimum wage at that point. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to pay a tip. If you don't want to pay a tip and a delivery fee, go pick the pizza up from the shop. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I, so I, I think it's interesting. You, you have this, you sent me this article or this, um, this department of labor site and I'll, and I'll link this in the show notes, but um, it, it's interesting that it, it talks about the, this minimum cash wage. And I think most people are familiar with, or at least if, if it's a thing in your state, there's this, there's the minimum wage, which is the federal minimum wage is seven twenty five, And it's been there for, I don't know, 10 years at least. Right. Something like that. Oh, it, at least, I think I remember yeah. when I was like right out of high school, it went up from like six fifty to seven twenty five. Right. Yeah. It hasn't, it ha you know, it, we used to hear sort of like the what I would call the old American left talking about, you know, hourly wage and things. And we haven't heard them talk about this anymore. But the last people I heard talking about this publicly were older Democrats, actually. And right. That's definitely not. Well, there's me, the whole so. fight for 15, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, ironically, you would think that I'd be that before that. And the people I work with would be for that. None of them yeah. are for that. We had a discussion about this, like, you know, while we're, you know, doing our dishes or whatever in our, in our kitchen and every single person there was opposed to it. Even the most like left wing yeah. person I worked with, well, they were well, all opposed because they knew what would happen. Half right. So the we, people there we, would lose their job. Right. So we, we should talk about that in a little, in a little bit, but, but so just looking at this minimum cash wage, so you have the, the standard federal minimum, which is seven twenty five, And then of course states are allowed to implement a minimum wage above that, but they can't go below it. And yeah. then there's this, there's this minimum cash wage which is $2 and 13 cents at the federal level. And so the idea is that this is, um, this is what you, uh, what your employer is going to pay you. And then your job is to, you know, do well or whatever, uh, in the job and you get paid, you know, tips on top of that. And I so get about, about four, 60% of the time I get tips when I'm right. delivering a pizza. Yeah. I live in a town where you have on the one hand people connected to defense contractors and the oil industry. And on mm. the other hand, really poor people. Right. And who's going to tip you in that situation? Well, often the poor tip you better. Yeah. It's the weirdest thing because they've all worked those jobs that they know. And, and pizza is not a thing they do every week. But I, I used to be surprised when I go to knock on a door of a McMansion and, yeah. you know, deliver the pizza and the guy puts zero in the credit in, on that tip line in the credit card. I used to be surprised by that. I'm actually not anymore because those guys didn't make all their money mm -hmm. by, you know, giving any of it away. So. No, no, <laughs> no. Well, so, okay. So, um, you know, so what we have here is this interesting column on this website and you'll see it if you click on the link. So it says maximum tip credit against the minimum wage, which is in, you know, it's the difference between 725 and 213. So it's $5.12. And so the idea is that uh, I'm guessing, and Anthony, you know more about this than I do, but I'm guessing the way this reads is like, well, if you, if you want to pay the, you know, just, just your half of payroll taxes, 
right? Because I think people might not know, right? You pay a certain percentage in payroll taxes and then your employer pays the other half. Well, if you're self-employed, you have to pay the whole amount mm-hmm. on, uh, you know, on wages up to a certain point. Um, I think it's a hundred and hundred and something thousand, 125,000, I think for married filing jointly. I don't, I don't know. But anyway, the point is, you, you know, if you get $5 and 12 cents an hour in tips, then you only have to pay like normal, you know, employed person taxes on this. But if you make above that, then you start paying the, um, you start paying uh, self-employment taxes, I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, but, but then like you're saying, like you said before, you know, a lot of people who, you know, who, who work in these types of jobs, you know, even with one, two or three jobs, they may not actually even necessarily pay taxes because, you know, the, 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 um, the deduction, you know, gets them out of the range of where they're paying taxes or they have credits or something like that as well. Um, and so, but, but I think it's just interesting that, you know, abstracting from those situations, you know, it's, it's interesting that you kind of have this incentive to like either um, not state the full amount of your income, right. To avoid this onerous tax, right. Cause I mean, you know, full boat payroll taxes is like 15.6% or something like that, I think. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's just, it's unreal. I mean, that's a lot of money, you know, and, and if you're just playing your, you know, the employee half, it's only, you know, seven and three quarters or whatever, but it's like, th- this just seems so, it seems like it puts you in this weird spot where you either have to lie <laughs> about your tips or you have to pay this ridiculous tax percentage. And most of the tipped employees don't understand that, but they don't, re- sure. most of them don't accurately report their tips either. Well, right. And so, yeah. And so that, that's, what's so interesting too, is that like, you know, you constantly have the left talking about how like, oh, well, you know, we got to make things, you know, we got to make it so people, you know, I mean, they're constantly drumming on about, you know, how they think, you know, black people can't get driver's licenses or something like that. But then when it comes to, you know, this type of educational component, right, where somebody, somebody actually doesn't understand the tax rules because they're so complicated. Well, they don't want, they don't want to simplify the taxes. You know what I mean? Like they don't, they don't want to simplify that stuff because, you know, they like their, you know, they like the feel good mechanism of this idea that, you know, complicated, um, you know, progressive taxation is, you know, it's going to hurt the the big guy, you know, mm-hmm. um, which is just, it's, it's so funny that, it, it, you know, they're just so delusional because it, it, har- it harms the little guy too. <laughs> so right. clearly. And I, I do sometimes wonder what the macro, you know, tax revenue generation loss is from this too. You know, how much money is this? I'm more concerned about the state than the federal government, even though the federal national debt is terrifying, but the, how much money is our state governments losing in tax revenue because of this? I sometimes yeah. wonder about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, state taxation is a completely different story because, you know, all states kind of have different, well, they, the, first of all, they have a different tax burden in general. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, as, as we saw with, with the, with the whole salt, um, <laughs> salt deduction issue and stuff like that, but, um, they also have a different mix of income and property taxes. Right. And so, yeah. uh, you know, I, I recently moved from Georgia to Kansas and, you know, can Georgia has a, has a flat or almost flat 6% income tax and Kansas's income tax is lower in general. The, the top marginal rate is lower and it's more progressive. Um, and so, which means that, you know, the, the lower your income, the lower your rate, uh, but the Oregon. property taxes are unreal here. <laughs> Oregon is, Oregon is had, I moved from Oregon a few <laughs> years ago to Oklahoma and the 
property taxes there have been more or less frozen since the mid 1990s. There's no sales tax there. Mm-hmm. And they have a quote unquote progressive income tax, but the vast majority of people, because it was written in like the 1920s and the yeah. numbers have not been updated, the vast majority of people fall into one tax bracket. Wow. And that's, yeah, no, think, now think about that in terms of recessions. Yeah. No <laughs> Oregon doubt. was annihilated in the Great Recession. Yeah. And there, are, there are counties in the southern part of the state that only have on-duty police officers Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Oh, that is terrible. Right. They're rural counties, so in theory, it's not that bad. <laughs> but, well, it just means you need to arm up, right? So. Well, th- those happen to be the, uh, you know, the deepest red counties in the state, too. Yeah, so, of course. Well, so so let's let's get over to the policy discussion, because I know, um, you know, I you're you're uh let's just say you're well educated on the policy stuff too um and so what so you were talking about your observation is that your um your colleagues at these at these minimum wage jobs don't don't like the idea of um you know jacking up the minimum like doubling the minimum wage or more um, because they they see the economics of it even if their politics doesn't line up with someone who traditionally would you know we would think of as being someone who would see the economic side of it, they, they see that it's just going to make, it's just going to mean that their hours are going to get cut even more than the raise in pay. Right. Or their position will be eliminated altogether. Sure. The, yeah. um, there's a, you know, a massive disconnect between policymakers and the people who have to live on the receiving end of the policy. Like sure. a lot of the, a lot of these places would, would actually get closed if, uh, if my state adopted a $15 an hour minimum wage, there's talk of Oklahoma adopting a $10 minimum wage. I'm wow. skeptical of that. If you know, the state elected exactly one Democrat to the Congress, <laughs> right? Yeah. So we're, I mean, Oklahoma city is and Tulsa are where most of the liberals in the state are to use the colloquial terms, but they're not, those cities are still much more conservative than any major cities in the country. Um, with some exceptions, of course, but in general, they're much more conservative than other places. And so I'm, I'm finding it interesting that the, these really conservative lawmakers are talking about raising the minimum wage that much. Uh, I mean, then again, a lot of the, a lot of the businesses are being put to shame by Walmart now who offers higher than minimum wage, like nine to 12 bucks an hour for some positions. I was shocked when I saw that at a Walmart recently. Um, wow. But these, uh, yeah, by, but a lot of my colleagues, you would expect, to walk into if you were to be a fly on the wall in the back you know in the kitchen mm-hmm. of, a, of a pizza shop to have everyone there being uh you know economically liberal and yeah. not all my on board with aoc and all of that <laughs> no I've, I've only there's only one employee there that i know of that is uh you know a progressive and the rest are definitely not wow but then again i live in the heart of oklahoma yeah that's yeah so i mean sure so but but that's but that's what's so interesting is like you would think like that, I mean, this is their livelihood. I mean, this is how they provide for themselves. And it's so like just out of out of basic need, you would think they would sort of modify their politics, you know, to, to make that fit. But one of my colleagues has a Trump 2020 sticker on his truck. And I, I saw when I saw that, I was like, so what are you going to do if someone you go to deliver a pizza and yeah. they, uh, that someone looks at your car and says, I was going to give you a tip, but, you know, it's time to punch a Nazi. And he said, well, I'd probably lose my job because I'd hit him back. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's fair. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh my gosh. Well, so, so, so that, that's, I guess there's maybe uh, sort of a bias there, I guess, that we would have to deal with um, in the discussion, but, but I, but I, I, I am interested in this whole, um, you know, minimum wage discussion, because I think even, even sort of on the traditionalist, right, you, you get people who think that, you know, this is, this is a solution, right. That, that there needs to be some kind of a minimum wage, uh, um, you know, or, or, or it needs to be hiked up and it's like, you know, you know, uh, and, and they'll say things you know, like, you know, economics is just voodoo bullshit. You know, we don't need to, you know, just, just ignore that. It's just garbage. Um, right. You know, <laughs> we, I think we just need to do it and it's not going to be that bad. The problem I think that these kind of discussions need to address is, are we trying to put traditionalist solutions into the existing system or are we trying to find something better? Because right. yeah. if we're just trying to, for the existing system, then we're going to have some kind of a minimum wage, probably the libertarian model of no minimum wage. I, I can't see how that doesn't turn into a disaster. I try, I spent a month in Australia about a decade ago and uh-huh. I was, and at the time I was pretty left wing and, but I was impressed by their, uh, their dual minimum wage system they had there where if you were a non-emancipated minor, you had a minimum wage of much lower than the minimum wage for everyone else. Now this came with a consequence though, although this might've been part of the recession because it was during the recession that I went there and it it was that the, um, it, a lot of their workforce were not working full time. Mm -hmm. That might've been recession. That might've been the fact that they had a, their minimum wage was higher, but you know, you know, yeah, a lot of I these think, jobs aren't minimum wage type jobs anyway. But yeah, so. see, I, I think I think Australia. I mean, I I personally don't like their model. I think I think Australia has a lot of problems, um, be, because they, you know, they they have. I mean, like for instance, you know, just even just purchase, purchasing power parity dollars, like they're everything there is really expensive, and maybe that's just because you know they live on a giant island with almost no people, but. Uh, right, I, I, you know, it's a uh, their maybe their it's dollar, a real their dollars kept to parity with the U.S., but everything is expensive. It's ridiculous. Yeah, so so I don't know. I, I think I think there's something to be said for um, some kind of a policy solution, but I just I I worry that you know, and and you know, some people say, well, maybe we need to get rid of these jobs. You know, maybe it is okay. You know, yeah, in the short term, you know, it, it would be really tough for these people to try to find something else to do, but. Um, you know, you would, you would sort of line up incentives a little better with employers and they, they wouldn't be able to just get by, you know, sort of, um, you know, offering, you know, basically nothing for these, uh, for these people, you know. Um, I, I worry because the conversation in the more mainstream is being influenced by guys like Andrew Yang and others who want to create what they, what they don't realize is going to be a sort of dystopian permanent underclass of, people who are essentially living off the government. And I don't mean that in the, here's your food stamps, here's your, right. your housing credit. I mean, here's your government check every month on top of all these social programs. Yeah. I mean, these guys always say, oh, we'll be able to eliminate a lot of these social programs. That has literally never happened. No, no, that's, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, the people I mean, really it, riot whenever you talk about like scaling back some of these programs. Sure. And and and, and I think that's, that's one of these things that, that you have to, you have to talk about entropy. You have to talk about, um, you know, that not everything is some kind of, you know, you know, economic comparative statics kind of, you know, I, it, it becomes silly because I think, um, 
you know, the way we talk about policy is like, well, everything can just be, you know, some kind of marginal change. And, uh, you know, so I, I kind of am on board to an extent with the libertarian folks who say, you know, well, there's unintended consequences, but of course I think they take that way too far. Is there some other solution you see to, to dealing with, um, you know, people who have this sort of in this kind of milieu and, and what the actual solution would be for, you know, people who are in these types of minimum wage jobs, you know, and of course we have several problems, right? There, there's, uh, you know, they have to take on a bunch of jobs to make ends meet. Uh, you know, there's no dedication from the employer or the other way around, actually, you know, I, I mean, there's no dedication in either direction normally. Um, you know, and minimum wage seems to have some problems with it that, um, you know, at least would make it hard to, you know, get started. Uh, you know, as far as just implementation costs up front. So what, what do you think is the, the, the better solution long-term? I think the better solution is probably, I would say, consumer action and uh, maybe action by business owners, which would be instead of, you know, the national franchise model, which seems to be dominating the American landscape now, to, uh, you know, more localism, more locally owned businesses, you know, maybe go to that mom and pop, Italian restaurant in town instead of going to the Olive Garden, yeah. right? Um, because the, the, your chances are that that those places are going to be more invested in uh, maintain, you know, keeping their employees. Oftentimes, those places have more family members working for them. Uh, you, you'll probably end up getting a better result out of that, right? The um, but so but but I mean I I guess my challenge to that would be like well you know mom and pop pay the same thing I mean. Well, that's because that's the legal incentive they're getting. I mean, at that point, you start getting into the problem of, uh, you know, who who designs our policies? Are the lobbyists? And what do the lobbyists do? They design to they design the, uh, you know, the laws passed by Congress to protect to specific industries. That's what they're for. You know, we don't have a free market in this country. People say we do. We don't. Not, yeah. not with the not with the way the government works in this country. And I'm not sure yeah. what a free market would look like anyway. But. Yeah. The, I, there, I don't know if there is a simple policy solution. It's why a lot of people go for, you know, the sort of subsidiarity violating uh, national social programs. I, I'm not right. against social programs per se. I just, uh, I yeah. just want to know how they're going to work in keeping with su uh, subsidiarity and solidarity, the sort of two of the three keystones of capital social teaching. So it just, so it really, what I, I, I guess, you know, it seems like the, the, the issue is that, because it's such a complicated problem, there isn't a, you know, simple solution. And so what we ought to do is just, um, you know, focus on, um, you know, focus on changing the underlying incentives and the underlying, uh, you know, the underlying problems, you know, it, whether it's, you know, just the fact that there isn't, you know, there's very limited solidarity and, and that sort of thing. So, you, you know, we have to get that stuff right before a policy solution is going to, it's going right, to fix it. Right. Our car problems are, are essentially cultural. We've, right. you know, people of all beliefs in this, in, in the United States and other Western countries have adopted ideological views that are not in keeping with their professed religious values. Right. You know, so if you, I mean, if your reaction is, you know, well, you chose to get that job, you know, that's on you. That's, yeah, that's really not a really a traditional view on these things. The traditional view is to have a much more integrated approach. You know, a, I am my brother's keeper <laughs> sort of approach to things and yeah. letting people suffer, you know, their minimum wage jobs and with their, with the poor health consequences that come with it and essentially being enthralled to the government on, you know, there are social programs that 
provide a bare sustenance, help keep them alive. That's not in keeping with traditional values and not the traditional right. sort of societies most of us would rather live in. Right. Well, hey, you know, Anthony, I, I really appreciate your time and, uh, and your insight on this issue. And I think, you know, a lot of people who are just maybe disconnected from this type of thing personally, um, you know, they don't, they don't get the, the notion that, that they need to, um, you know, they, they need to think about this as more complicated than just, you know, a simple policy solution. So um, wh where can people find uh, your, uh, your stuff, your, your, uh, cause you, your main job is, is not delivering pizzas. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I managed to, you know, provide a very basic uh, support for my family actually by doing the YouTube and podcast thing. You can find me, uh, the Return to Tradition podcast on Anchor.fm or on YouTube, and or on really any podcast platform you happen to have on your phone, right? Pretty much, yeah, because uh, Anchor sends it out to everywhere. So yeah, um, just you like can this find podcast, me. So yeah, you can find me on there, and uh, on any of my videos or audio uh, formats, you can find me elsewhere. With and of course, highly highly recommended by me. So if you like trad dads, you're going to like uh, Return to Tradition. So you should definitely listen to both. So yeah. <laughs> But uh, all right. Well, hey, thanks again, Anthony. And uh, for my listeners, thanks for your support. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate you just listening on Anchor. Um, if you'd like to throw a couple bucks my way on a monthly basis, Anchor will process those payments. Um, and so there, there is a support button on most of these podcast apps uh, for uh, Trad Dads. So thank you so much. And uh, everybody have a good week. Thanks for listening to the Trad Dads podcast. If you enjoyed our show, Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and consider giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. It really helps us out.